Uh, gracious God, thank you for giving us the privilege of seeing uh, in Jolan's work uh, the kingdom grow and you uh, expand everywhere that your name is, uh, is, is proclaimed as righteous and as good and as grace-filled and as a savior of everyone. God, uh, this morning as we come in and we hear um, uh, difficult stories, tragic stories of God's uh, people, your people spiraling away from you, God, we ask that even in our lives, as we spiral away, as we turn away, as we rebel, that you just cling to us just as tightly as you clung to your people so many years ago. God, uh, refresh our uh, eyes, our perspective. Lord, give us uh, something uh, new, something fresh, something grace-filled to take away from this word today. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, Hey, friends. One more comment on the the video. I couldn't help but notice in the background, did you see the love in the Mitten State and a few people? Um, That's awesome to see. I love, I love Michigan, right? And I mean that in no way sarcastically. Uh, (laughs) But but seriously though, I do love, I love the Mitten State. Uh, The weather, the winters are a bit long at times as you experience, but it just makes us appreciate summer that much more. Uh, Grand Rapids is awesome because uh, as I keep hearing from uh, lots of people who are in town, maybe a student kind of coming back and forth, it, it's like a small town, small city uh, advantages like you know, parking situation and short commute times, but like big city uh, offerings, big city uh, concerts and um, whatever, right? So we, we got this area that's, that I just love except for one small disadvantage, and it's not the weather. There's a good chance that if you're from Michigan or if you stay in Michigan long enough that you might become or be born into a Detroit Lions family. It's rough because there's something about the Lions that just disappoint but yet pull you in every season. It's a weird kind of cycle, isn't it, that no matter how badly they perform, you just yell that much louder at the TV that you just, it sucks you in just that much more. KJ, uh, also known as intern KJ, who's a diehard Lions fan, and I can share this with you because he finally broke his addiction. He's like, all right, I'm not, I'm just going to like go cold turkey on this for a season or two. But he'll be the first one to tell you it has a way of sucking you in and just and keeping you. And as soon as they offer just a glimmer of hope or support that, that this might be their breakout year, not that they're going to win a Super Bowl, that maybe they'll just like get to appear in a conference championship game or something. No, as soon as they give you just a little hope that maybe it was the running back or maybe it was the head coach and we got the right person in now and it brings you in, it just disappoints you <laughs> that much more. And then the louder you yell at the TV and the more it sucks you into the offseason for, for coming up in the fall. It's a weird cycle. I just want to point that out. It's bizarre. I don't quite get it. It, and you kind of wonder, you know, just taking this to the extreme, you know, being a Lions fan, just how, how bad uh, could it get, you know? Just what would happen? What if it wasn't the Lions? What if it was something more serious? What if you got a, a friend, maybe a housemate, long-term friend, somebody that you're close to for a long time, and the, the, the guy just has a propensity to, to get in and stay in just terrible relationships. 
And the worst thing about him in a relationship is as soon as he starts into one, he just, he loses himself. And it's tragic for like everybody else around to, to see this happening because they know what's coming. Is that he just gets sucked in and as soon as he does, it, it, the personality of the friend starts to fade away and drop away. I mean, he starts acting a different way. He starts dressing a different way. He starts watching different things on TV. starts reading different books. He starts speaking a different way. It's like who he was before he met her just totally disappears. And as he completely gives himself into this relationship that ends in failure every time, Logic would tell you that he would just be done. He would give up. He would check out and he would, at least for a little while, not want to be in a relationship anymore, right? Like the lions, just like, I got burned and now I'm done. But like the lions, it has a way of just sucking him right back in. He goes, no, no, no. the problem isn't that I was in a, in a bad relationship. The problem wasn't that I gave too much too fast. The problem was that I didn't give enough. And so I got to find somebody better for me and I got to give even more of myself sooner to make the next one stick. How does that story end? I mean, just, just given this spiral, right? That just goes down and down and down and down. How does it end? Better yet, how do you break it? In someone else? And ourselves. There's a good chance that whether it's a blind spot in your life, there's a good chance, whether you see it or not, that, that there's a spiral going on. And that people can look at you and go, you think the problem is that you haven't given enough of the thing, but no, no, you've given it too much place in your life. No, no, the, the, the issue is just is simply that I just I need a promotion, I need a raise. I need a, just a way to make ends meet, you know, this month and next month. The problem is that I just need more money. And everybody else around going, dude, you're like a junkie on this stuff. Like you, you need to break it and break free of it. It has a hold of you. We are not talking about financial security anymore. We are talking about greed. You do not need more. You need to break away. How does the story end? We continue this series that we've been working through on the book of Judges. It's called Unfaithful, God's Pursuit of His People, right? No matter what. And in the book of Judges, we start to see that the cycle that repeats itself time and time again is a cycle of, of prosperity, of things going well. Don't think about them having so much, but just this deep, profound contentment and deep satisfaction with what they do have. But as soon as they have that, they start to turn away. And there's this time of, of rebellion, of pointing away. And you just want to say, again, are you kidding me? And then they go into a time of oppression. Now the thing about the book of Judges is we keep coming back to, to remind it time and time again is that this isn't just a sign of a flat circle that's going around in the cycle. It's a spiral going down and down and down. Is that every time we talk about a judge, things have gotten progressively worse. And friends, we're almost at the end of the series. So we're going to see this morning, things are going to be pretty bad. And I want to give you just a, a spoiler alert to say, friends, our judge this morning is not a success story. 
I don't think our judge this morning has anything for you to take into your week. I don't think this judge has anything for us except to say, this is what not to do. Last week for Gideon, we started the the thread of having and keeping an, an idol, something that takes this ultimate place in your heart. Something that takes a, the place of a, something permanent and something lasting, something eternal, something that isn't permanent and lasting and eternal. We started that thread last week with Gideon when we said, listen, he's going to rescue the people for, from the oppressors, but first rescue starts at home. So go into your hometown, tear down your dad's temple, put an altar to the Lord on it, start here, start with yourself. We're going to pull that thread of idolatry and see just how the tragic story ends. I invite you to, uh, to look with me to uh, Judges chapter 10, um, verse 6 on the screen and on the uh, back of the flow sheet behind me here. Judges 10, 6 says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. <laughs> if you're tired of hearing that, if you're just like, oh, seriously, this has got to be the 11th time or so, you are right. I think that's the, exactly kind of the emotion that the storyteller wants to bring in the story, just this sheer sense of exhaustion. Again, it happens. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the uh, Ashtoreths, sometimes called the Asherahs, and the gods of uh, Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Amorites, the gods of the Philistines. And because uh, the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, Israel was in great distress. It's a spiral, right? We got that by this time? The oppression that comes, objectively the worst oppression yet. It's the worst oppression that comes yet because of its intensity. A few weeks ago, we had an economic kind of oppression. We had uh, foreign kings come and exacting tribute or heavy uh, taxes, levies, weight on the people. It it kept them uh, poor, Last week we heard that the the foreigners, they came like a cloud of locusts, just this dark, ominous cloud descending and taking everything from the people. This year, the only descriptions that we have is that they, they were shattered and crushed. I'd like to offer up that... This was the worst oppression that they've had for three reasons. Number one was just how very intense that it was, that they were shattered and crushed. Number two, how long it was for 18 years, one of the longest yet. And number three was how widespread it was. Sometimes you get uh, like specific tribes or specific areas of Israel. This time the storyteller goes out of his way to say that what was in peril, what was in jeopardy was all of Israel on both sides of the Jordan River. This is the, the entire land. It was intense, it was long, was widespread. Why was it so harsh? They've done evil in the eyes of the Lord in the past. Why is this one so much different? 
I think that this one is unique because the, the rebellion that the people, the road of rebellion that the people go down is that unique. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. We heard about that one. Our last judge. Gideon was supposed to save them from the Baals and the Ashtoreths that were located right in the heart of the land. They were the gods that the people who occupied the towns and cities previously worshipped. They turned back. Not only that, they turned to the gods of the Ammonites. I'm sorry, the gods of, the, uh, of Aram, uh, northwest of Israel. Uh, gods of Aram. I'm sorry, I thought, I thought our first judge... Avniel, you know, the, the guy who had everything going for him, the ideal scenario kind of judge, I thought he was supposed to rescue us from Aram and the gods of Aram. No, no, they turned back. The gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, uh, east of Israel, also known as the, the gods of, uh, that Ehud rescued them from, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, remember Shamgar? Probably not, it's only one verse long, to the south of Israel. Listen, you could like paint a map on the screen of Israel in the middle. And the author here just goes right around the clock and says all of the nations that bump into Israel, so, so far all of the nations that have oppressed them in the past and a couple of new ones, that they take on the gods of all of those. It's weird. It, it's weird. I mean, I... We've been on this road. I get how they would go down there the first time, right? I, I get how they would look at somebody else, you know, the grass is greener, and say, you know, they, they have a, a deity system that clearly is working for them. I, I think that I'm going to kind of like adopt that and maybe become part of that. And you've got a, a system of a worldview in the ancient Near East where people looked at who was the god over a certain patch of dirt, and it was like this patron deity people kind of system, and you have uh, Yahweh over Israel and the uh, Baal and Asherahs over the Canaanites. And you'd, you'd have these warring nations. And when they, they fought, it was the belief back then that, that the, phys- the fight was the, the physical manifestation of this spiritual battle between the gods. It was Yahweh versus Baal. And whoever won the fight won the patch of dirt. Now you've got a people of Israel looking over across the Jordan and going, I think that's going to work for me. I think I'm going to try that. I'm going to, I'm going to become like you. you can kind of see how that just invites the neighbors to say, I think Baal is giving us this one. Yeah, yeah, no, this is obviously an invitation. And so sometimes it's tribute, it's taxes that go out. Sometimes it's just this understanding. We can just go in and take what we want like a black cloud. Other times we can do what we want. We can shatter, we can crush. They belong to us now, isn't it clear? No, I can see how idolatry leads to slavery. What's so bizarre, what's so weird about this is that they've been to this dance before. In fact, they've been to all of these before. We already heard most of them. We heard about Ehud. We heard about Gideon. We heard about Abniel. We heard about Shamgar. We heard about Arab. We heard about the Ammonites. We heard about Philistia. We heard about all of these. They know exactly what's going to happen to them because they've been down this road before. And now they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, not just going to one of them or two, but it's like a hall of fame, like Rolodex, you don't get that reference, most of you, kind of just list 
of every past God and people that has ever oppressed them in the past. They turn not one, but to all of them at the same time. And God is done. Verse 10. The Israelites cried out to the Lord. We've sinned against you. Forsaking our God, serving the Baals. We've heard that before too, haven't we? Uh, Just last week they cried out to the Lord. And God said, what are you sorry for? Are Are you sorry that you're now suffering under the consequences of your own behavior? Are you sorry and now you're regretting what you've done? Or are you so deeply sorry, not just for yourselves, but for what you've done to me? How you've hurt my heart. Verse 11, the Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, and the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites, that's another name for Midianites, oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you? From their hands. Haven't we been down this road before? But you've forsaken me and served other gods. So I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. Uh, harsh. So I will no longer save you. Uh, verse 7, he says he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. You know, it is harsh. But, but just to be clear on something, when you sell something now, you, you get the impression like, well, it doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to somebody else. I just had somebody um, before the service here come up and say, hey, the car that I bought from you, I now sold. It's like, I don't care, right? <laughs> it's not my car anymore. When you sell something, that person can do whatever they want with it, and it's not me. I, I want us to, to point out that that idea is not what's communicated here. God is not communicating that the promises that I made are null and void. The commitments that I have, the relationship that I'm in. He's not saying we're, we're completely done now. He's simply saying, as a theme that's picked up all the way through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, he simply pointed out, listen, if this is what you want so bad, as the quote goes, the gentleman God backs off. If that's what you want, you can have it. In Romans 1, it says, Paul says, and he, God gave them up to their lustful desires. The Greek word epithumia, God gave them up to their uh, enslaving desires. God gave them up to the deepest longings in their heart. If this is what you want, I won't stand in your way. And so God, like you can just imagine him just peeling back, pulling back this shield of protection that he's had on them up until this time. Fine. You can have it. Go to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. Verse 15. But the Israelites, but the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do whatever you think is best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them 
and serve the Lord and he could bear Israel's misery no more. Hang on. Okay. You just like timeline here. They cry out to God, please help, please help. And he's like, if that's what you want, you can, you can have them. You know, you're crying out to the wrong deity here. Go. You seem to have all the answers. As they cry out, later, a couple verses later, they get rid of the, the, the foreign idols that are in the living rooms and in the garages, right? You caught the timeline? As they're crying out, they've still got the insurance in their living room. Like, in case this doesn't work, you know, we're not going to get rid of everyone, right? Okay. Other points on that. Um, we have sinned, do with us whatever you think is best, but please rescue us now. It's a tone change. We talked about the difference between regret and repentance, right? Re- I think it was switched around. Regret was over here. Regret and repentance. Regret feels sorry for, for you, feels sorry for the consequences. Repentance is, is sorry for the thing that was done. When you offer up in regret and say, listen, I am, God, I need help Please help me so that I can have X again. You sort of betray your, your motives and say, my God isn't really you, my God is X. I just need a stepping stone for me to get to X, Y, or Z. But if you say, listen, I don't care, as I do here, I don't care about X, Y, and Z. Do with us whatever you think is best. If we continue to be oppressed, if we continue to suffer, that's fine. What's more important to me that I have you, God, that can never be taken away. As they move into repentance from regret, an interesting thing happens. He could bear Israel's misery no longer. Have you thought that when you suffer, whether you brought it on yourself, whether we didn't do anything to bring it on us, but has the thought penetrated your heart that, that when you suffer, God suffers with you? The theme of the morning is, is idolatry, but maybe you showed up this morning and and you didn't need to hear a word about idolatry. Maybe you just needed to hear the simple line that the pit that you are now in, God is also right next to you in that pit and it hurts his heart. Second thing is that we can feel this tension come out in the story. You know, some, uh, some commentators, some people might want to say, well, it's, it's obviously an oversight, an overlook, that a few verses earlier he said, listen, I, am not, I will save them no longer, verse 13. And then a little bit in verse 16, he said, I, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to do something. I got a judge coming. What's the deal? It's a mistake, right? The tension is there. I think it's a tension. It's very subtly put in the text just to say, listen, we have this, this pull in between the, the deep holiness of God and this, this expectation that a perfect God creates perfect things and brokenness and evil and death and illness and sin does not belong in his creation. And, and everything else is a rebellion from it. 
And someday he's going to make it all right. We have this tension, this pull between God's deep holiness and on the sa- him saying, listen, you got yourself into this mess. I'm not going to get you out. I'm done with this game. I'm too holy for this. And his deep mercy saying, I can't take it. I'm going to rescue them. <laughs> I'm going to save them. One more time, it's a tension that we're not going to see resolved today. No, the story ends on a note of, of tragedy. It's a tension that carries thousands of years. It's a tension that I think only Christ's work on the cross is fully going to resolve. His deep holiness meets his deep mercy, and it costs him his own life. But that's not this story. This one is more tragic than that. I'm going to read for you. It's not on the the flow sheet, but uh, the beginning, the introduction of our judge, Jephthah, verse 1, chapter 11. The Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a, sorry, his father was Gilead from the Gileadites. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife is presumably not the prostitute I'm gathering. When they grew up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any of the inheritance in our family, they said, because you're the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, a Hebrew word which means good, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. That isn't relevant to anything. I just thought I'd throw that in there. But Jephthah, right? Our judge, our hero for this morning. He's, um, he's the product of his dad's affair. His brothers drive him out, probably as, a, as a, still a little kid, right? Before he's a threat for the inheritance, before he's developed any kind of connections. And he becomes a thug, but you get the impression like he's a high-level thug, kind of a, like a criminal mastermind thug leader in a land called Good where scoundrels follow him. I said it was a spiral, right? Verse 6. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, "Um, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we're turning to you now. Come with us. Fight the Ammonites and you'll be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Uh, Jephthah answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, the Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. I can't help to point out, this is the the cleverness of the, the biblical author here. The conversation that Jephthah has with the Gileadites is the exact same conversation that the Lord has with the Israelites. Where the Israelites go before the Lord and they say, hey, rescue us. I know you can do it. And the Lord says, you don't want me. You've got someone. Go plead to them. And they say, no, no, no. Seriously, we'll put it all on the line. Idols, gone, repentance. We really want you. 
And he says, okay. You're right? He makes them do it twice. The same conversation where the Gileadites come up and say, you want, I want you. And he says, no, you don't want me. And they say, no, no, really, we do. I just can't help but point out that there's, that there's a, a thread here that says, listen, is, uh, it has to be this undivided heart, right? We're talking about idolatry this morning and the thread that just pulls harder and harder and how it'll eventually all unravel. But, but you cannot have God without God's leader. You can't have the insurance in the living room or the garage. Some of you might be on a spiritual journey this morning, uh, coming to this place, and you might have questions about Christianity, kind of doing a test drive, kicking the tires, checking under the hood, just checking it out before fully committing. I don't blame you. But you should know something about this faith. You should know something about Christianity, that you cannot be a follower of God without accepting God's man, Jesus Christ. It's just how it works. A heart cannot be divided before the Lord. He cannot be a philosopher or a prophet. He cannot be a wise moral teacher. No, no. We cannot follow God without accepting God's man. I think Jephthah also points that place towards Christ. Subtly, but one more time. Skipping down verse 29, then the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He's going to go to fight now. He crossed the Gilead in Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead. From there he advanced against the Ammonites. And, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house, to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. And I'll sacrifice it as a burnt offering. I said the story ends in tragedy. He's God's man. We just heard. The people believed he's God's man. He believed He's God's man. He believed that victory was his. But when push comes to shove, even though he believed it, when he's just about to go into battle, he throws up one more Hail Mary and says, you know, just for insurance, If you give me victory here, whatever comes through my, and the word is, front door is yours. Sacrifice it as a burnt offering. You want to like reach into the story and just like grab them by the shirt and say, Jephthah, what are you doing? Why would you make a vow like that? You didn't even have to do it. Victory was yours already. You knew it. Your people knew it. Everybody, why would you speak those words? And to an extent, there's this there's this truth, right, that the culture that he lives with, he's a he's a high-level thug, right? And violence is his life. And, and so you just imagine him completely desensitized to, to what it takes to sacrifice as a burnt offering, whatever or whomever is going to come through his front door when he gets home, right? 
But more than that, it's like, why would you make this vow? And I think the cultural sort of like penetration of his heart is that the, the, the beliefs of the people nearby have sort of been, been trickling in his heart and have been filling up those chambers for probably much longer than he can ever even remember and look back. So much so that, that when push comes to shove, he reaches back into the insurance bin in the living room and says, you know what? Just to ensure victory. Everybody else around here, they offer up someone. They offer up a person up on the altar, burn them up before their God just to show how committed they are. Just to show, listen, I will give you this if you will give me that. And he makes the vow. Verse 34, when Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out and meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of timbrels. She was only a child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter. You have brought me down. I'm devastated. I've made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Reaching in the story one more time, Jephthah, how many times does God say in the Bible, the book that you have, the Pentateuch, the first five books, how many times does God say, I detest human sacrifice. I loathe it. He says, I hate Offering up a person. It's what made him different than everybody else around. A question, Jephthah, why did you make such a vow? Jephthah, why did you keep such a vow? It's not a story of, of hope, but one of tragedy. So at the end of the story, even Jephthah couldn't come back from the, from the greatest idol of all. That is the idol of his own mistaken beliefs. His idol that his God, Yahweh, was the same as everybody else's God. The idol that there was no such thing as Grace. The idol that if God was going to do something for him, like deliver these people, do a miraculous rescue from yet another oppressor, that he owes God something in return. And he goes through with it. We asked a question earlier about what happens if somebody is caught up into something and it just has such a hold on them, whether it's a relationship, whether it's financial obligations, whether it's substance abuse, no matter what it is. And you say, dude, it's so bad for you and it hurts and cuts so deeply. Why can you not see that you you need to stay away, not give yourself more? How does that story end? For Jephthah, the story of of ungrace turns into tragedy. 
Since it isn't a story of hope, I'll offer a challenge. To say, don't be like Jephthah. Don't go there. Don't believe in a God of ungrace. The world serves that God. There is no hope there. There is no peace. If you're, you're chasing financial security, it will never come. The popularity, there's always going to be more popular people, more followers to have. If you're chasing the next sexual conquest, there will always be the one that got away. There is no hope there. There is no life there. There is only tragedy. If you come to church knowing that with Jephthah, what was closest to him, his greatest idol was not the stuff around, the money, the popularity, the sex, the power, whatever. His greatest idol in the end was his own mistaken belief of a God of ungrace. Friends here at Encounter Church, whether you've been here a long time or you're just dropping in this morning, I just want to point out that this place, again, is not for us. It is for him and for his glory to reach out to reach new people, to bring others into the light of God's grace. It is so easy to take a thing like an own mistaken belief that the church is about us when it's so clearly about him. What's the idol? What's the divided heart in your life? Jephthah was so bad so filled with ungrace, such a terrible judge that in the end, there's no peace. There's no time period of prosperity. They just go right into the next one. And I got to tell you, it's not going to be any better. But I think he was so bad that even in the depths of such a terrible judge that he was, the difference between him and whom we really need It's just that much more stark. You know the road that keeping an idol, a divided heart leads to, a God and leads to. If you have already, or even if it's the first time, I invite you to try the road of grace, try the road of Jesus, try the road of the judge, of the leader that brings lasting peace. For you to stand up. Let's pray for that this week. Gracious God, filled with mercy, grant us this week as well your holiness. God, give us this sense of overwhelming drive, passion, and desire to be like you to think like you, to act like you, to want the things that you want, to have our hearts break for the things that break yours. And God, when we fall down, and we will, by your Holy Spirit, pick us up, dust us off, and give us the grace and mercy to enter this week fresh. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.